out Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus and the rich man. And then if you're taking notes this morning in your bulletin is a little outline. And I've entitled this morning's sermon as, Which Direction Are You Going? Which Direction Are You Going? Luke chapter 16. We'll look at verses 19 through the end of the chapter. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they should also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Father, we bow before you this morning as we've sung about the resurrection of Christ, as we've thought about the glories of heaven, as we long to be with Jesus there. And this morning, God, as we come to this text of Scripture, I pray that we would learn what you want us to learn so that we can live how you want us to live. And God, I pray that you would shine light in this parable of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we could clearly see which direction we are heading. And it's in Jesus' matchless, powerful, and risen name we pray. Amen. Well, on December the 11th, 1984, there was a dense fog that shrouded a highway, Highway M25, in Surrey, England, a few miles south of London. The hazard warning lights were on, but were ignored by most of the drivers. At 5.50 a.m., a large semi-truck carrying huge rolls of paper was involved in a terrible accident, and within minutes, the highway was engulfed in carnage. There was a pileup of no less than 26 vehicles and 31 drivers and passengers that were involved. And as the rescue teams arrived on the scene, they witnessed the dreadful fires as each one of these automobiles had caught a flame. One officer reported that several of the drivers and their passengers were trapped in their vehicles. 
and it was impossible to get them out because of the fires that were burning so fiercely. A total of nine people were killed, and only the last one in the long line of the wreckage was able to be identified by his body. All the others who were deceased in the accident had to be identified by the remains of their vehicles, dental and medical records, and items of personal property as were not consumed in the fire. As the first two policemen cautiously approached the scene after the initial call came in, they realized that they must warn oncoming traffic. And so they ran back up the highway to prevent any further damage. They waved their arms and shouted as loud as they could. But most drivers took no notice and raced on towards the disaster that awaited them. The policemen then picked up traffic cones and flung them at the car's windshields in a desperate attempt to warn drivers of their danger. One told how tears streamed down his face as car after car went by and he waited for the eerie and sickening sound of impact as they hit the growing mass of wreckage farther down the road. Why am I telling you this horrible accident here on Easter morning? Because I am an officer of the Lord. It is my duty and my responsibility to warn you of the coming danger. I'm here to tell you today that there is a crash down the road and that we better watch out and be warned of potential danger if we don't slow down and set our eyes on the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. It is possible that each one of us could go down the path of life and die in a tragedy at any moment. We must be warned about the potential danger that could happen there. We are all riding down the highway of life and everything seems to be going fine. The scenery is beautiful and the sky is blue and the road is wide open. And then it happens unexpectedly. You hit a patch of fog. You can't quite see where you're going and things start to spin out of control. And before you know it, the ride is over. My question to you today is which highway are you on this morning? Are you traveling on the road to heaven or on the road to hell? Are you walking in the light of Christ or are you walking in the darkness of this world? Have you repented of your sin or are you rebelling against God? Are you completely trusting in the finished work of Christ who died on the cross for sinners? Or are you trying to finish the work you started and reach heaven on your own merit? Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? Or do you belittle this claim as a fantasy made up by those with weak minds and outlandish beliefs? I'll tell you what Jesus says about the path that we're on this morning, his warning. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, he says, Enter by the narrow gate. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 38, Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. 
Jesus says in Matthew 16, 24, and 25, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And that's what the parable is all about here in Luke chapter 16 of Lazarus and the rich man. Jesus gives a story to emphasize that what you believe on earth which is evidenced by how you live, will affect where you go when you die. And what you believe now and how it is evidenced in your life will determine whether you are on the highway to heaven or the highway to hell. This morning, I want to give you five truths that we will learn from this parable that will help us make sure that we are on the right path. I've taken and adapted the main points of this outline from J.C. Ryle's expository thoughts on the Gospels. And so here we go. Point number one, it's not about the status of how you live, but the state you are in when you die. That's what it's about. If you look at verse 19 and following, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with all that fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. It's not about the status of how you live, but it's about the state you are in when you die. In the flow of Luke chapter 16, Jesus had been challenging the parables, uh, challenging in the, uh, with some various parables that were challenging the idea of the love of money. They were, he was challenging these Pharisees that you can't have two masters. You can't serve, he says in verse 13, you cannot serve both God and money. And after this clear teaching, you would expect the Pharisees to kind of take a step back. The religious people of the day, you would think they would take a step back and admit that Jesus' words are true. You can't serve both God and money. But in verse 14, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. They mocked Jesus. He said, hey, look, you can only have one God, and you can't serve God in money, and he calls them on it that they loved their money. The Pharisees loved money. In fact, they were the inventors of the health and wealth gospel. It started with the Pharisees. They were legalists. They believed that if you lived well and kept God's law, that you would be blessed with riches. But if you live poorly, you would be cursed by God, and therefore you would probably die and, and go to hell, and it would be evidenced by this horrible life that you would live. And so this very parable of Luke 16, Lazarus and the rich man, shows how Jesus confronts this mentality as the Pharisees listen. They probably think that this rich man will go to heaven. Notice in verse 19, first of all, that the rich man is not even given a name. That is actually not unusual in the parables that Christ taught us. In fact, in every other parable Jesus ever told, human characters were always kept anonymous. In, in, in the other parables, Jesus talks about a certain man, a certain king, a certain landowner, a certain creditor, a certain priest, and so on. And so this is a certain rich man. The word rich here could be defined as having an abundance of earthly possessions that exceeded the normal person's experience. And that is evidence in two ways. It's kind of evidence here by what he wore and by what he ate. 
Notice how he was wearing purple. He was dressed extravagantly, and he wore this every day. It was to symbolize royalty. It was expensive to extract the purple dye from shellfish in order to color the clothes of the day that were normally fairly drab. And so while he was not a king himself, he dressed like royalty. And then he also ate uh, amazing meals of, of, of various types of foods. In fact, it says that he feasted sumptuously every day. It could also be translated that he was, uh, that, that he joyously was living in splendor every day, or he lived in luxury every day. This rich man, no doubt, had plenty of food, plenty of friends, plenty of festive parties where he lived the good life. In fact, one commentator says this, he was not just rich, he belonged to the class of people to whom the epithet filthy rich is often applied, and not without reason. He was living day by day in dazzling splendor, marks him as a show-off, as a strutting peacock. He wanted everybody to know he was rich. He was in love with himself. That he was utterly selfish will become clear as the parable moves along. Well, that's the first of the two main characters, the rich man without a name, plenty of riches. The second main character in the story is the poor man. We read about the life of the poor man named Lazarus. This poor name was given a name. This was the only character in any of Christ's parables who was actually given a name. His name was Lazarus, which is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Eleazar. Eleazar meant whom God has helped. And so the question is often asked, well, why did Jesus give one character in one parable of all the parables he taught a name? And why did he name him Lazarus? Well, I want to tell you what I think the answer to that, ser- that question is a little bit later in the sermon. All right, so you've got to stay with me, stay awake for no other reason of like, man, why did Jesus name this guy Lazarus? I want to know right now. Well, Lazarus was a poor man, and to be poor was to be economically disadvantaged. And by definition, it also means to be dependent on others for support. That's the idea behind being poor. You're not independent. You're dependent on somebody else. And this is definitely true of Lazarus. In fact, that's why the text says that he was laid at the gate of the rich man. Somebody had to lay him there. It's in the passive. It's the idea that he didn't walk up and lay himself down there. In fact, some would say he was paralyzed. Others, friends, brought him to the gate of this rich man, thinking surely he would receive sympathy from this man who was so wealthy. And so they laid him there. Not only was he laid there, he was covered with sores. It's very likely that if he was indeed paralyzed, as we suspect, that these are what we call bed sores. They're pressure sores. Anybody who's ever been in a rehab center knows that you have to have physical and occupational therapy of a patient who's laying in bed and cannot move. And if you don't rotate them and literally turn them from their side to their back to their front to their side, they will develop horrible bed sores that will get infected and weep pus. It's very uncomfortable and very inhumane that this would ever happen And yet this man was covered with these sores. And Lazarus was in desperate condition, just desiring simply to be fed. And even if it was just eating crumbs from the rich man's table. We are never told that Lazarus received nourishment from the rich man. But we are told that Lazarus provided nourishment for the dogs that came and licked his wounds. Shame on this rich man, right, for not 
defeating this man in any way. But let me just clarify one point here, lest we misunderstand. There is nothing unspiritual about being rich. And there is nothing spiritual about being poor. God does not necessarily give grace to the poor and treat the rich grimly. Abraham was rich. King David was rich. King Solomon was rich. There have also been many poor people who've rejected God, denied Christ, and who have died in their sin. You don't go to heaven because you are poor, and you do not go to hell because you're rich. And that would be the furthest thing from the point of this parable. Again, it's not about the status of how you live, but it's the state you are in when you die. This is why Jesus says, for what profit, for will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? And yet forfeits his soul, or what shall a man give in return for his soul? You've heard that verse many times. What in the world does it profit a man if he were to gain all the riches in the world and have lots of, of houses and land and fine clothes and all the food he could eat, and he gained everything this world has to offer, but he forfeits his soul? What is as valuable as a soul? You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying, don't sell your soul to the devil, don't exchange eternal life for a good life now. Don't think that somehow that you can serve both God and money. You say to me, well, Adam, I don't really care that much about money. I mean, I don't have that much money. This isn't really addressing me. I would say, yes, it does address you. You and I do care about money. We care about where we live. We care about our comfort. We care about our clothes. We care about what others think about us. We care about our status. We care about our future. We care about our investments. We care about our retirement. You would be a fool to say, I don't have any care about money. The problem is, is that we care too much about the here and now, and we don't prepare for an eternity outside of this world. So the idea is that surely we should give careful thought to stewardship of God's wealth that he's given us. But the real key is, is that you better care about eternity. You better care about your status on judgment day. You better care about where you stand before a holy God. You better care about being prepared for, for heaven, not by being dressed in your own good works, which are filthy rags, but rather by being dressed in the righteousness of Christ. Not about you or your effort or your status. It's about Christ and about him alone. Christ died for broken sinners who are empty of self and willing to sell all for the pearl of great price, which can only be received by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. And this leads us to our second truth that we can learn from this parable this morning. Number two, death is the common end to which all classes of mankind must come. Notice the first blank under this heading, special care from God given to the believer. There is special care given to God for the believer. In verse 22, in the first part, the poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The beggar's misery is finally over. The poor man died. And nothing is mentioned of a funeral or a burial for him, but this verse does state that he was clearly honored in heaven. And first of all, he was carried by angels from earth to heaven. What an amazing transport that must have been. He might not have had a nice chariot here on earth, but it certainly was nice that angels took him to heaven. I just read an article this week about a Colorado-based company called Boom. 
which has announced their intentions to build a supersonic jet. This would be a commercial flight available for the rich and famous that could travel Mach 2.2, which is a blistering 1,500 miles per hour. This luxury ride could get you almost anywhere in the world in no time. The cost of a flight from New York to London would only be about 5,000 bucks. Who's in? This poor man traveled from earth to heaven, from one world to the next in the split of a second, and it didn't cost him a dime. Lazarus didn't have that kind of money, but he traveled in the accompaniment of angels. This transport couldn't be bought, was given free of charge to God's most recent resident of heaven. In the scriptures, we learn that angels are known as attendants of Christ, bringers of good tidings of great joy, choristers of heaven, defenders of God's children, examples in obedience, and friends of the redeemed. These angels brought Lazarus to Abraham's side. Some translations, the old King James says Abraham's bosom. We have NASB, also Abraham's bosom. I remember as a kid reading that word thinking, what in the world is Abraham's bosom? I lost the whole parable because all I wanted to know was, what does it mean to be in Abraham's bosom? It sounds gross. But it's not gross. The word literally translated would be Abraham's breast or his chest. The ESV translates it as Abraham's side. It was denoted in the ancient world to be a place of honor. Not that you just know the host, but that you're close to him. This would have been Lazarus going from the position of social outcast to the privilege of being the honored guest. And while he was repulsed by the passerbys on earth, he was received by the patriarchs of heaven. While Lazarus longed for the crumbs from a mortal's table while he was here, he is now lavished with an abundance of food offered in love from the immortal, invisible, God-only wise. He's made it to the banqueting table of heaven. He has all of his needs met. All of his satisfactions are in heaven with Christ. But things were totally different for the rich man. Your next blank says special care absent in the death of the unbeliever. Notice in the middle, towards the end of verse 22, just simply says the rich man also died and was buried. The text simply says the rich man died and he was buried. And while he might have had an extravagant funeral, nothing is mentioned about it because nothing on earth matters anymore. Oh, how quickly things change. The great reversal is seen here as the rich man who would have been well-known on earth is now unknown in heaven. The rich man who may have had every attendant known to man on earth now had no attendant to take him to heaven. The rich man who had failed to show compassion here will not be shown compassion there. My friends, death comes to us all. There is no escaping the reality of death. It is the one experience known to man that puts us all on the same playing field. For some, it comes quickly, and for others, it lingers. But rest assured that death will visit us all. And on that day, it matters not how much you possess. It matters not how many friends you have. It only matters of, of the fact that do you know Jesus Christ or not? 
There's only one friend who can get you to heaven, and his name is Jesus. There's only one way that you can enter the gates of heaven, and that is through the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, which simply means he died in your place. He was richer than the rich man, and he became poorer than the poor man so that you could go from earth to heaven all on the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And the Bible says, greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends, that Jesus died for you. He died so that you could experience what the poor man experienced in heaven, not so that you would experience what the rich man experienced in the afterlife. Jesus laid down his life for all those who would repent of their sins and trust in Christ. We must trust in him and in him alone for the forgiveness of sins. And salvation comes only in his name. And this leads us to our third point that we've got to understand here again, the reality that hell is the real place of eternal torment where there is no second chance. In fact, your first blank under this heading says eternal pain, which can never be relieved. Verses 23 and 24, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. The term which Jesus uses here is the term Hades, which was used to translate the Hebrew term Sheol, which in the Old Testament referred to the realm of the dead in general. However, in the New Testament, the word Hades always refers to the place of the wicked prior to the final judgment in hell. The imagery Jesus used paralleled the common rabbinical idea that Sheol had two parts, one for the souls of the righteous and the other for the souls of the wicked, separated by an impassable gulf. All that to say is that Hades in this parable is nothing less than a precursor to the eternal hell of which Scripture clearly speaks in Revelation chapter 20. If you want, turn there and look at it. Here's a description of the final hell listed by the word Gehenna, which is the word for hell and the word for eternal torment. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 7, at the very end, after the second coming, we read this, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their numbers is like the sand of the sea. Verse 9, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's the ultimate end of hell. But even now, in the midst of this Sheol or this Hades was a precursor to this place. And my friends, hell, Gehenna, is a real place. It is mentioned 12 times in the New Testament, 11 of those from the lips of Jesus himself. Just listen to a few times Jesus mentions hell in Mark 9, 43. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, for it is better to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. 
Mark 9.45, and if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. In verse 47 of the same chapter, and if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. According to Jesus Christ, hell is a real place where people are in pain and in agony, being in torment. It's a continual torment there in the present tense that lasts day and night forever and ever. At the end of verse 24, back to Luke 16, 24, that there is a continual anguish, the rich man says, in this flame. The fires of hell are real. This rich man is desperate for relief. And he asked Lazarus if he can just dip the end of his finger in water and cool his tongue. You say, Adam, why are you talking to us about hell? Don't you know this is Easter Sunday? Don't you know that I've invited my friends and my family and my neighbors, and this is a sermon on hell? My answer to you is, that's why the resurrection is so precious. That's why Jesus is raised from the dead, so that your friends and your family don't have to go to hell. That's why Jesus teaches about hell, because it's important for us to know. And I'm not into using scare tactics this morning. I'm into using truth tactics this morning. And the truth is, if you don't know Christ, you will burn in hell. It's our job as Christians to warn others, if you knew there was a fire coming, to your neighborhood, about to come over the realm and, and consume your neighborhood, and you've been ordered to evacuate, and you knew your neighbors were still in the house, and you weren't willing to go knock on their door and tell them to get out for their own safety. What kind of neighbor are you? What kind of preacher would I be if I didn't talk about hell? If you won't tell them, then allow me. If you won't let them know the end of the road, then allow me this morning to at least read to you from the words of Christ about the soon coming judgment of the living God for all of those who would abort the words of Christ and adopt their self-made theology. Again, this is why the resurrection is so purposefully wonderful, that Christ died on a cross so that we don't have to go to that place, that we can escape through the blood of Jesus, and we got to understand that if you don't come through Christ, the next point in your outline says eternal position. Hell is an eternal position that can never be forgotten. Notice in verse 25, but Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner, bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. In other words, if it's not bad enough that you're suffering the fires of hell, you suffer eternal consequences of your guilt of remembering what you did or didn't do on earth that you have to live with now for all of eternity. And there's nothing you can do about it. You're in a position that you can't get out of. You're stuck there. And this is in your memory. That's what you take with you. You know, you can't take anything to heaven with you except your memory. The Bible says, naked I came into this world and naked I shall depart. You're not taking your possessions with you, but you will take a certain consciousness of where you will be able to recognize 
people apparently in the afterlife as well as remember things that happen on earth. And if, if it's not bad enough that you're in this eternal pain and anguish, you have this guilt that you have to deal with. The Bible says that men are without excuse, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by, the, uh, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. In other words, God has revealed himself plainly through creation, through our own conscience, and through the person of Christ so that when anybody dies and goes to heaven or they die and go to hell, they are without excuse. The next blank in your outline says eternal partition, which can never be crossed in verse 26. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. We see that not only would it be improper for Lazarus to ease the rich man's anguish, it would be impossible. There is a great chasm separating the lost from the redeemed. And crossing over from one side to the other is therefore impossible. And this serves as a graphic and unforgettable representation of the irreversibility of a person's lot after death. Once you die, that's it. And that leads us to our fourth truth this morning. Unbelievers find out the value of a soul after death when it is too late. Verse 27, next click on the outline, you cannot organize a missions operation from hell. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. All of a sudden, the rich man wises up. After you die, it's too late for your soul, and it's too late for you to try to help save the soul of another. Isn't it interesting that now that the rich man knows the truth, he is interested in Lazarus helping him. He wasn't interested in Lazarus on earth. He didn't pay him any attention, but now he begs that Lazarus would help him out, and the rich man is now trying to use him. Now, Lazarus has value and, and obviously has the knowledge of, of salvation, but it's too late. One commentator, one commentator said this about hell, quote, hell is nothing more than truth known too late. We also learn, next click, that you, can make, you cannot make requests after you die. Verse 28, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. And this would have been unthinkable for the Pharisees to think of a man that was so blessed on earth could actually perish in hell. If there was any redeeming thing to this rich man, it was the fact that he desired that his five brothers maybe hear the good news of the gospel. But we have one life to live, and after that, we die. There's no reincarnation. There's no second chance. There's no missionary on a bicycle after you die. The idea is in Hebrews 9, 27, and it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. There are no second changes, chances. There are no changes in your condition after you die. One great divine said, quote, he that would live well should often think of his last day and make it his company keeper. In other words, we should think about the end of our lives and make wise decisions now while we still can. It was Moses who actually said in Psalm 90, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Listen to what 
the most famous and well-thought-of American theologian, Jonathan Edwards, wrote in his 70 resolutions, number seven, resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Resolution number 17, resolved that I should live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Resolution number 55, resolved to endeavor to my utmost to act as I can think I should do if I had already seen the happiness of heaven and hell's torments. We should resolve to live life with no regrets. And the biggest regret that you could ever have is that you failed to embrace Jesus Christ as your Savior. The final truth I want to share with you this morning is number five, the greatest miracles would have no effect on men's hearts if they will not believe in God's word. Next blank, adequate means are already in play to lead people to Christ. Verse 29, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. In other words, rich man, if you want your five brothers to hear about the truth. They already have the truth with them. It's in Moses and the prophets. This would have been a reference to the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament written by Moses, and the prophets, the rest of the Old Testament written by the various prophets. So the entire Old Testament is adequate, is able to point anybody to Christ. Moses wrote in Genesis 3.15 that he shall bruise your head and you will bruise his hill. First place of the gospel, Genesis 3.15. He also wrote in Deuteronomy 18.15 that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. In other words, Moses, from the very beginning of his writing in Genesis 3.15 to the last book he wrote, Deuteronomy 18.15, he wrote, talked about Christ and he pointed to Christ. And such is the same with all the prophets. How about Isaiah 53, 10? Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Speaking of Jesus, he has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. So it talks about the crucifixion, but in that same verse of Isaiah 53, 10, he also prophesies the resurrection because then he says, he shall see his offspring. In other words, Jesus will live to see his spiritual offspring. He shall prolong his days. The crucifixion is not the end of Christ. He will live forever. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. God's will of eternal life will continue through Christ. This was taught throughout Moses and the prophets. We already sang about it this morning in Job 19.25, another prophetic utterance that I know my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon earth. And so we understand that there's enough in the Bible already to point us to saving faith. And so your next blank says this, astounding measures do not guarantee the conversion of a lost soul. Verses 30 and 31, and he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced even or if someone should rise from the dead. Do you remember earlier in the sermon I told you why Jesus, why I believe he named the poor man Lazarus? It was because I believe that a few months later, 
there was a real man named Lazarus who actually died in John 11. And you would think that uh, after Jesus then raised Lazarus from the dead four days later out of a tomb, that it would have had such an impact that everybody would have become believers. But they weren't because in John chapter 12, they started making plans to kill Lazarus again. So there were those who witnessed somebody come back from the grave who did not believe in the testimony of Lazarus. In fact, they plotted to kill him again. Not only that, but in a so much greater way, Jesus Christ is prophesying about his own death and resurrection, saying that even when he is raised from the dead, doesn't mean that everybody who witnessed the resurrection will repent and believe. We already read about the soldiers who were paid money not to tell the truth of what happened, and they chose not to believe. In fact, interestingly enough, turn with me to Luke chapter 24, and notice how Jesus as well, at, after the resurrection, points people back to the scriptures to learn about the resurrection. Luke chapter 24, we know that there was the road to Emmaus where Jesus is walking with Cleopas and another companion, and they're talking about all the events that have been happening during that week of the crucifixion, and now some of his disciples are saying he's resurrected, and they can't believe that Jesus doesn't know about this. They don't know he's Jesus. Their eyes were hidden from him, so they just think he's a normal you know, tourist or a visitor or a local who didn't hear all the big news. And then Jesus began to teach them and instruct them. They still don't know it's Christ. Keep that in mind. In verse 25, Luke 24, 25, And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. What did they say? Verse 32. Then they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the what? The scriptures. Even Jesus, after he was raised from the dead, did not emphasize the personal experience of the resurrection as the authority of the resurrection. He pointed them to scripture. He, put, he walked them through Moses and the prophets so that they would have an everlasting testimony of the truth of God's word, that they could be saved by looking to the scripture. The same thing happens to Peter. We don't have time to turn there, but if you'd like, jot down 2 Peter 1, 16 through 19, where he talks about that we have a more sure prophetic word. Even though Peter had witnessed on the Mount of Transfiguration and experience with Jesus, he said there's something more important than that. It's the prophetic word of God. It's what Paul writes about in Romans 10, verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It's what we read about in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. You say, Adam, what are you saying? Are, are you saying that the scriptures are more important than the resurrection? 
No, I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that it is only because of the scriptures that you can believe in the resurrection. It's only the testimony of the entire counsel of God's word that points to Christ that gives authority to the resurrection. The authority of the resurrection is not based on your testimony. The authority of the resurrection is not based on others' testimonies, as rich and powerful as they may be. The ultimate testimony of the resurrection is God himself through the Holy Spirit who recorded in the word of God the fact that Jesus would die and be raised again. And so all that to say that if you're here today and you're looking for some type of miracle, look no further than what the scriptures give credence to in the miracle of the resurrection. If you're here today and you're waiting for some type of experience, wait no longer, but rather look to the objective truth of scripture. If you're here today and you place more value on all of the outlandish testimonies of those who died and went to heaven and came back to somehow tell us what they experienced there, look no further than the scriptures that point us to the risen Savior. You cannot be saved by thinking through current events or experiences or the testimonies of others. You must look to Christ, and Christ is described in the Scripture. And so what we're saying is it's the Word of God that testifies to the beauty and the truth and the historicity of the resurrection. And that's why I appreciate J.C. Ryle on this passage says this, quote, the principle laid down in these words is of deep importance. The scriptures contain all that we need to know in order to be saved. And a messenger from the world beyond the grave could add nothing to them. It is not more evidence that is wanted in order to make men repent, but more heart and will to make use of what they already know. The dead could come tell us nothing more than the Bible contains if they rose from their graves to instruct us. After the first novelty of their testimony was worn away, we should care no more for their words than the words of any other. This wretched waiting for something which we have not and neglect of what we have is the ruin of thousands of souls. Faith Simple faith in the scriptures, which we already possess, is the first thing needful to salvation. The man who has the Bible and can read it and yet waits for more evidence before he becomes a decided Christian is deceiving himself. Except he awakens from his delusion, he will die in his sins. Friends, look to the word of God today. I beg of you, after this sermon, if you're here and you're not a believer and you are that visiting friend or neighbor, know that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And don't take my word for it. Look to the scriptures. Allow God to open your eyes through the scriptures that your heart may burn within your chest as you realize the truth of Christ, the fact that you're a sinner in need of a great Savior. Come to Christ this day, and he will not cast you out. We can end this morning by just maybe summarizing these three take-home statements. It's not about how rich you are on earth, but how rich you will be in heaven. Right? The Bible says... Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where rust and moth destroy and thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven 
Secondly, salvation is not based on your social status, but on your faith in Jesus Christ. Not about your pedigree or how much money you have or possessions you have. It's about faith in Jesus Christ. And last, the scriptures themselves are the most authoritative witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look to the scriptures. So which direction are you going? I pray that that if I've been faithful to warn you of this crash ahead, that you would not be like those motorists in England who ignored the warning of the officers and wrecked their cars and their lives as they were engulfed in flames. Turn from your sins and turn to Christ today, and he will save you. Jesus said, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to Christ. Get off the road that leads to destruction as wide and easy as it may be and get on the narrow road and come in through the gate of Christ and you can be saved and satisfied forever. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at this familiar parable of Lazarus and the rich man and help us to realize, God, this full description of the horrors of hell so that it may grab our attention as a true account given by Jesus himself of what happens in the life after this one. And so I beg of you, God, that you would make yourself known to those that are here on this very day through the preaching of the word of God, that they would turn and, and be saved by your grace. God, I pray for the skeptic today, that he would be overcome by the power of the gospel. I pray for the person who doubts today, that they would be encouraged by the truth of your word. I pray for the person in rebellion today, that they would realize that they're on the wrong path that would lead to destruction, that the enemy comes to kill and to steal and to destroy. But you have come, Jesus said, that I may have life and have it more abundantly. And so I pray, God, that you would help us see the direction we're headed, that it would be all by your grace, that we could be on the road to heaven, looking to Christ through the scriptures, so that we may know who you are, why you came, how you died, how you were raised from the dead, how you ascended to on high, how you sit at the right hand of the Father, interceding for your own at this very moment. Oh, what a blessed day it is to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.